I think the industry will be better served when we start thinking more around that our customer is not just the patient, it's the referring provider, it's the payer, and it's your employee. Creating that mindset where you are giving each of those a valued experience is what's going to ultimately make it more successful. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 142 of Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by my friend Tina Rivenbark. Tina is one of these people who is an expert in many things. And the more people that I've gotten to know, specifically in the pain management space, the more I have found Tina is deeply integrated with many successful private practitioners. And so I'm really excited to have Tina here today. This is probably going to be the first of several discussions to talk about HR staffing, building a winning team in a private practice, but she is, her, her expertise is very broad. So Tina, thanks very much for joining us today on APM Success. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time to have these conversations and, and share information with physicians and, and practice managers and all those that need to be making these decisions. I think one of the things that unites us is wanting to provide those value, as we said right before we jumped on live here, providing those valuable resources for people who are, you know, doctors just trying to make it work, especially in independent mm-hmm. practice and having the tools, the resources and, and the professional expertise, the professional team to be able to, you know, make a, a real good living and also provide excellent patient care. So you are just one of those people who I think stands head and shoulders above many others. I'm excited to talk today about specifically the staffing questions, but maybe before we dive in, just give us a sense, a little bit of your career arc up to this point. Well, it's it's been a, a long, very educating experience, career pathwise. I started in healthcare in a dental practice when I was 18 years old, like week one of undergrad at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington and kind of expanded my role from, you know, being the only administrative person slash dental assistant in a brand new dental practice wearing a number of hats, you know, a rapidly growing practice that needed an office manager and this and that and worked my way through school and then decided that I would go back and continue my education at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So I was fortunate enough to obtain a master's in healthcare administration there. And I gave my current employer three years notice because it was a three-year master's program. And so I said, you know, you know, I love you, but when when I graduate, I'm going to be looking to expand, you know, opportunities and and experiences and do something a little bit different. So, wouldn't every employer love three years' notice? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, yeah, that's that speaks to one of the things that I think makes hiring and retaining staff key and actually super successful is when you're an employer that employs build that relationship with like you know everybody everybody can go to work and get a paycheck and and do a job but understanding that you know that the employer is not just there to write the paycheck but they also you know care about their staff and 
want them to do well and want them to succeed and want them to have basic needs met and all those other things. After graduate school, I got a little bit baptized by fire intentionally. I took a job in contracts and proposals in a major clinical research organization. So I was writing multi-million, sometimes billion-dollar proposals on the financial side for primarily oncology clinical trials, which right on the heels of grad school really, really hammered that financial budgeting skill set. And I found that to be super helpful as I moved along. And then I finally branched out and said, you know, this consulting gig, this is really kind of what I want to do. This is where I want to be. I had been in the dental world. No dentist works on Fridays, at least not in North Carolina. So on on the golf course on, on Fridays, you know, all of the buds would say, well, how do I make my practice as successful as yours? And my dental employer slash second father said, well, you're going to have to call Tina because she's the one that makes all that work. So, you know, I, I was quite blessed to be on the receiving end of those types of endorsements. And then talk a little bit about the work that you've done in the last few years as far as helping physicians launch and run private practices. Sure. So my experience beyond, rapidly grew beyond dentistry and oral surgery and there's and those specialties, but moved into medical, multiple different specialties in the medical field. And just by some twist of fate luck, one of the first projects I worked on in pain management was with a good friend and colleague, Jeff Peterson, who happens to be the CEO of Dr. Deere's practice in West Virginia. So, you know, if anyone knows Dr. Deere, they know that he's, he and his team are pretty much the gold standard, especially in pain management. And so that has just by the opportunity of of performing well with and around those folks and on projects for Dr. Gear and and others that were associated. But, you know, I was blessed with that referral um, network. So primarily the last 10 years, I have been focused on assisting interventional pain practitioners to either start practices straight out of the fellowship, or if they're employed and want to do their own gig, or, you know, help them make good decisions and ask good questions and, and follow up on doing the right things if they're considering buying a practice. And even, you know, what, one of the things I really enjoy is speaking to the fellowship programs, just kind of getting in there early in that fellowship program and talking to those folks and saying, listen, here's kind of what the options are going to be when you finish your fellowship, you know, because they have a solid 12 months of just absorbing clinical, clinical, clinical as hard and fast as I can. And no one really talks much about occupationally or what it's like, or if you want to start a practice, Hey, you need to start that in September, October, at least working on those things because it's not an overnight process. So I really enjoy interacting with those folks because then I, you know, we'll frequently run into them again at Aspen or some of these other meetings. And it's, you know, it's just really helpful. They'll call me and ask me questions or, you know, if I, if I need a referral for a physician that's applying for a position I'm involved in hiring, then I can reach out and the network is just really, it's just a really great bunch of people. 
Yeah, that's been my experience as well. And so anybody who's been a long time listener of the show is hearing these buzzwords about you know, equipping physicians for employment transition, understanding practice models, understanding opportunity, quantifying them before you take the leap. It's always at some right. point a leap of faith, but we want to minimize the amount of faith requ <laughs> required as much as possible. And that's something that uh, I've learned a lot, even from you in our conversations, Tina. So as it relates to the matter at hand today, which is operationally running a successful practice and specifically building a team, finding the people mm -hmm. it takes. This is one of the biggest challenges I've seen that even people who I would, I, I do think of as successful private practitioners, I three out of four of them would raise their hand and say, absolutely. The biggest challenge I have right now is finding the right people to put on the bus and then keeping them on the mm -hmm. bus. So share a little bit about kind of what you're seeing right now in the job market as it relates to the different people required to run a medical practice. Yeah. And I would add a third part about the bus analogy, making sure the right people are in the right seats. Yes. So not only do you need the right people on your team, you need them doing the right things, yeah. which is sometimes that gets a little bit convoluted because, you know, if you think about historically 30 years ago, there, there were not a ton of masters in healthcare administration administrators rolling around. So the people that were leading these multi-million dollar businesses, these, you know, private practices were perhaps the best medical assistant or the best <laughs> nurse or the best receptionist or the best billing person, which, you know, I'm not in any way trying to discount that because generally those relationships are where your trust lies for some reason or another. But is, is that medical assistant that you pr promote to your practice management position? Is, is she well-tooled or he well-tooled to be able to handle all the things that are non-clinical, you know, the payroll, the HR, the risk management, the insurance procurement, negotiating supplies, buying new equipment, understanding all those things. And sometimes it's not only a disservice to the practice, but a disservice to that individual. Unless, of course, you're willing to help them commit resources and time and support some, you know, continuing education type things, perhaps even formal education type things to give them that skill set to be successful. So there's a few different practice models that I want to cover today. But in terms of, you know, one of the things that you do is help people launch practices basically from nothing in many cases, mm -hmm. or pivoting sure. in such a way that it's essentially a fresh start. So for someone out there in that position, who's now wrestling with what I'll call the, the staffing question of how do I build a team of people that are going to be able to support me and support my patients as we start this new business? What types of questions are you asking them? Or how are you guiding them as far as what does that year one to year two org chart look like? Yeah, so year one to year two, you have some basic positions that you can't do without, right? You've got to have someone to greet your patients and check them in when they walk in the door. You've got to have somebody to help you room patients and assist, follow up, return uh, clinical phone calls, those types of things in the back end of the house. So those, those are non-negotiables. And generally, you're going to want even a brand new practice that is unsure when the first patient's going to walk in the door. I typically would say start with medical assistant in the back, a medical office assistant in the front, and then he would be finding that other person who has a blend of that experience so that when the front desk person is busy, they can, you know, pinch hit there. 
when the medical assistant needs to be off because the child's sick or, you know, they need to be on vacation or a holiday or something of that, that sort, then you've got someone that can pinch in there and you, you can continue to operate. It might not be optimal, but at least you've got somebody that can help you get through a day successfully. So I, I tend to say you got to start with three, even though from a volume perspective, you may really only need two. You just can't, it, you, you create a very vulnerable situation if you have only two employees because something's going to happen that's going to cause one of them to not be able to, as much as they may even want to, be at work. I know one of the things that I've been seeing lately from some clients and just hearing anecdotally that the pay required for these roles, as we're seeing everywhere in every part of the economy, <laughs> across jobs mm -hmm. and even in, in buying things as a consumer, is inflation is happening in a real way. And it used to be the thing that you were paying 13, 14, $16 an hour for you're now paying 19, 21, 22. So can you talk a little bit about how do you think about sort of stratifying the cost of these different roles? Are they kind of like peers from a cost standpoint or are there, is, is it, you know, how do we think about that in terms of how is this person being paid and what's a, a fair wage to start at? Obviously it's geographically dependent. It is. And it, it's also dependent on their experience and education, obviously, but so speaking first to like a startup practice, I would advise startup physicians to go ahead and outsource your billing, find a really reputable, well-referenced billing company, and perhaps even, this is a huge thing right now for pain management physicians, is prior authorizations on nearly every procedure that you have. And that's not something that you want to mess around with, because if that's not done correctly on the front end, you're not going to get paid when that claim goes in, period. And it's a waste of time for everybody involved. So rather than try and have your medical assistant working prior authorizations in between patients or your front desk person working prior authorizations while they're answering three phone calls and checking in two people, you know, th those would, those are functions that can feasibly be outsourced. Okay. So I would push everything that can functionally feasibly be outsourced out, at least initially until you scale and bringing those jobs in house is makes sense. <laughs> it used to be hiring medical assistants, cl clinical staff, front desk staff. There was a, a premium in what, what you would call somewhat quote unquote unskilled labor that they would love to get out of a fast food restaurant or retail opportunity and go to work in a physician practice or dental practice or optometry practice, whatever, to one, normalize the schedule because you're not working crazy shifts or retail hours or restaurant hours. And two, it was generally the professional settings that offered the better benefits, health insurance, dental insurance, retirement plans, PTO, things like that. Now you drive down the street and the Chick-fil-A or the McDonald's has $20 an hour starting salary on the sign, you know, and suddenly we're looking around and we've got medical assistants who are making 15, 16, $17 an hour and they have multiple years of experience. So we're, we're, we're fighting a war that we didn't start, you know, in, in just the whole inflation situation, the COVID situation that has driven such a demand to our non-professional 
labor, I guess is what I would call that, if you agree. So just the battle for these people that support our organizations that we can't, I mean, you can be the absolutely, you know, the best physician in your specialty on the planet, top of your class, board certified, the whole nine yards. But if you don't have those people around you that operationally make that day function, it's all that is out the window. It, it makes no difference. So finding ways to create a working environment that is both attractive from a quality of life perspective, as well as obviously the financial considerations, benefit packages and things like that. I think even still the healthcare practices, private practices has the advantage in that the normalization of the hours is a huge part of the quality of life. So even though fast food, retail, restaurant, whatever it happens to be, are offering, you know, sometimes more competitive wages than than what we're accustomed to. I think there's a balance you can get somewhere between what where your budget budgeted salaries are to bring your staff up to a point where it's worth the trade-off, right? So, you know, maybe maybe one employee has small children and you allow them to come in half an hour early to work and another does not and you allow them to come out in a half an hour later to work and the you know the parent with small children can perhaps leave before the end of the day and that's you know that's worth a lot to that person obviously that's not the only situation but that's a pretty prevalent one in a industry that's typically female dominated are there any other things that characterize especially qualitative they characterize practices that are able to especially retain. I mean, turnover, it's so, it's not an explicit cost, but oh my gosh, to try to find the right people and then interview and then have some train someone and then have them leave after four months because they're not happy. That is just such a drag on morale and also ultimately financially. Are there any other sort of mechanisms or methods that characterize practices that are able to keep people and keep them happy? I think keeping employees feeling like they know what to expect, that they're appreciated and valued, and you know, and then competing as much as you can on on that financial side is is going to put you in the best position to retain your employees. So, if your employee manual is you know two and a half pages, perhaps consider revising that. Let them know what to expect, you know, because if they go to work at Amazon or McDonald's, all that is very much highly well produced and evaluated with legal and HR professionals and things. So just making, creating an environment and, and an expectation that they feel like not only is, is the job favorable or the hours favorable or the concessions favorable, but that the organization also has their act together. If you tell an employee that you that they're going to be on a nine-day probationary period or introductory period or trial period or whatever you want to call it, and at that at the end of that 90 days, they're going to be reevaluated for perhaps FTE status or benefit status or even more negotiation on some small salary adjustment, then 
your doggone can, are going to need to do that. Yeah. And these things take time in a small practice. That's the battle because as a clinician, you know, you've got patients pulling at you, you've got financial demands pulling at you, especially if you are not large enough to have a professional office administrator or someone working for you on, on that behalf. And you have, you know, likely family demands and getting your notes locked in an EMR and all these other things. And, you know, here's this employee that you've only had for 90 days that, wait, I owe that person something. You know, it's, I mean, I understand it. It's hard. There are so many things pulling at you at one time. It's just figuring it out. And, but those, I have actually seen those types of things be what cause an employee to leave an organization. Yeah. I was actually talking to a consultant earlier today. It was actually pertaining to my industry, but we were discussing these challenges about staffing. And he said, uh, Mm -hmm. the, the tenure of any employee, whether long or short is going to be determined in the first 90 days. So as an employer, Mm -hmm. Clarity of communication, clarity of expectations, what you said about policies and procedures, getting that squared away. It's like you only get one chance to make that first impression. And you may think as an employer, like you're the in the power seat, but uh, it the first impression dynamics and the need to make a good one still applies to you. Correct. It does. And, and I think the industry will be better served when we start thinking more around that our customer is not just the patient, it's the referring provider, it's the payer, and it's your employee. Creating that mindset where you are giving each of those a valued experience is what's going to ultimately make it more successful. You mentioned talking to fellows. You know, there's many parts of the mechanics of practice uh, launching and ownership that are well beyond you know, the curriculum of that one-year pain fellowship. And certainly the HR function, finding, vetting, and onboarding talent to help you run your business is something that probably does not even occur to most fellows. And, mm-hmm. and rightfully so, if you're not bound for private practice, that's fine. But if you are and you envision yourself as a clinician, yes, but also a, a business leader, it's something you're going to need to get up to speed on. So in that context, how, do, how would you encourage somebody to like go from zero to something more than zero in terms of their knowledge. And at what point in your sort of staffing and HR journey, do you hire someone who can then take some of that burden from your shoulders? Yeah. So in the startup process, when I'm, when I'm working with a physician, that's either leaving a group or, you know, coming out of fellowship. One of the first things that they're introduced to is when we're working together to craft their employee manual, because that's when you're making decisions on how you're prioritizing your commitment to your employees. And, you know, am I offering three paid holidays a year or am I offering 10? Am I paying for my employees' health insurance or are they having to find their own way with that? Am I, you know, committing to periodic evaluations of performance and and or salary? Am I committing to training and, you know, continuing education or helping them to grow in those positions. Cause that's, you know, that, that again is one of the things that if you're, if you're not a provider or you're not, you know, a master's level administrator, the, the growth opportunity for the either occupationally 
trained or technical school type training situations is far more limited. So, you know, if you're a PA, you can aspire to be a clinical director, or if you're an RN, you can aspire aspire to be a clinical director or, you know, various sundry options that may not be available to a medical assistant that's been trained on the job or through a business college or something of that effect. And so keeping those people engaged and excited about their career path and helping to support that growth in that career path, I think is super helpful because otherwise you've got folks that are going to jump to the next job for a quarter raise. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, you've got to offer something more and it's not always that financial piece that gets it. Once you're operating for a little while and, and revenues are up and you're thinking about a, a more sort of full-fledged practice manager type is hiring and managing, you know, the kind of staff that we're talking about. Eventually, I would imagine that that practice manager is going to take on more of this responsibility. At what point do you sure. generally see that happen? And to what extent is it possible to offload this responsibility, knowing that at the end of the day, if it's your practice, it's still your decision and you're going to either enjoy the benefits or the you know the detrimental impact of having somebody who's either in the wrong seat on your bus or shouldn't be on it at all. Yeah. And that's super complex, right? I'm not sure that I answered your prior question. Well, Um, you asked me at what point do you bring in somebody to like a professional level management person early on a a brand new practice can't, it's not logical for them to pay a six, six figure salary to an administrator. It just doesn't, the math doesn't work, but having a consultant, maybe a compliance company, maybe both, maybe being part of some sort of major service organization where they provide some support to that end can be helpful. And then when you get to the place where you're hiring someone to actually in, in on HR and in multiple other levels, basically they're vetting the small decisions for you. They're making the small decisions for you and then vetting and interpreting the larger decisions to present to you for input, hopefully. And so understanding that that person is both skilled and educated and has the experience to be doing that well, as well as the character. Are they trustworthy? Are they responsible? Are they mature? Are they professional? Are they going to say something to a patient that's not going to bode well with your referral sources? Are they going to say something or do something with an employee that's you know going to get you sued are they going to you know offend a vendor and then you lose a relationship there that's also valuable um so i think understanding that that person has the tools and knows how to use them appropriately i guess would be the best word to represent you the way that you would want to be represented in your absence and there's not really any magic to that that's kind of a i think do your very best to research the candidates, you know, references, criminal background checks, following up on any and everything that you can, but none of that is surefire 100% reliable. So my advice at that point, I think would be to dole those responsibilities out a little bit at a time, evaluate the performance, evaluate the feedback, 
and then determine if it's you know positive enough for you to let that rope a little bit looser. There's a guy named Dan Sullivan who wrote this book called Who Not How. There's some jokes in my industry. Instead of trying to solve a problem, you find the person who's going to solve that problem. And it's a much easier way to solve the problem because then you don't have to solve it. You just have to find a person. And the joke is that, well, if I could just find someone to solve my problems, like I would have done that already. But it's actually finding the person isn't necessarily, this is my opinion, isn't necessarily, in some cases, isn't necessarily easier than solving the problem. But you do have the benefit of once you find that person, then you don't have to worry about the problem ever again. So you don't have to solve it the next time. For somebody who is hearing what you're saying, like finding a you know professional practice manager who has these experience, who can be your proxy, who can make good decisions, who can be nice to people and you know separate people who are arguing in the front office or whatever and do all that with tact, you might as well, they're maybe processing this thinking, yeah, that sounds great, but you might as well tell me to go find a unicorn or a four leaf clover because it sounds too good to be true. How would you react to that? Or do you have any specific insight as to how to take the first step towards finding someone of a professional caliber and character caliber that, that might fit the bill? Well, I, I mean, obviously you, you would, again, through the interview process, I would have multiple people interview each candidate. So if you have a, a physician's assistant in your office or even your medical assistant, receptionist, whomever, I'd have multiple people with multiple points of view to interview the same candidate. And the reason I do that is notably, inevitably, they'll they'll say something to one person that they won't say to another. And it can sometimes be very, very enlightening. And I think that aside from checking, you know, the, the normal educational things, college degrees, master's degrees, which whatever your your scope of that candidate is that you're looking for the professional associations also i think are key to giving you insight on whether someone is actually committed to the profession you know if someone's been a, a practice administrator for 10 years and they're not a member of the local mgma or a acmpe or some professional association that holds them to a standard while also supporting them and helping them gain new tools every day, then that might be insight to whether that person has the commitment level to their profession that you're, that you're going to want or that you're looking for. You mentioned MSOs. Mm -hmm. This is obviously a big topic. That's like, you might as well say like, what do you think about a car? It's like, well, it depends on what kind of car we're talking about. Some go fast and some go less fast. So in terms of MSOs, as it relates to solving a staffing issue, and you might think like, well, it sounds enticing for me to say, I'll give away some percent of my revenue to never have to deal with hiring an office manager. Can you give us some important questions to ask for someone considering going the more turnkey MSO route as a way to address staffing questions and whether or not that may be advised? I mean, I think in the simplest terms, an MSO is just multiple similar businesses coming together to share resources so that, in my opinion, so that you can get higher quality resources that you may not be able to budget for yourself. Now, obviously, that's that's the ultimate goal. goal. So I think understanding, if you're considering joining an MSO, understanding, obviously, the cost, the quality quality of the shared services that you're going to receive. And you, of course, owe it to yourself to compare what 
you would be able to reproduce those services for yourself if you were flying solo. Not all MSOs are, you know, mean that we're married on every level or at every point of a practice operations. Some, you know, just share network contracts, they share billing services, they might share prioritization services, they might share HR services. There, there may be leadership that you get access to a higher level of leadership than you would ultimately afford in your own small private practice. But others, for example, if you're part of a hospital net type network, would be far more constrictive, perhaps, and less ability to influence change or decision making. So I think I would just not just beyond the cost aspect, you know, want to understand the quality of the services that you're going to receive as a member of that group or pool. One last question I want to address. I know we're coming up on time and I appreciate your time today, Tina. Once, you know, you're an established practice, you're maybe a few years in, you've got good patient flow, you've got staff that seem to like you, they keep showing up every day. You've got systems in place that's a that good sign. are working, we're, we're paying the bills, there's money in the business checking account, we're feeling good. And we, we want to think about what does incremental growth look like? Talk about staffing and the associated financial obligations in the context of growing practice where going from like one office to two offices, for example, is it's a 100% increase <laughs> in the number of sites you're operating. And so it creates staffing and rent and, you know, fixed cost complexities that then is a, a financial pinch point. When doctors are asking these questions of, do I keep running like a pretty profitable thing here? Or do I try to rubber stamp this, you know, in a couple areas around this locale? What types of questions are you engaging with them on as it relates to new office space and the staff associated with that in order to help them figure out if that's a good fit or a risk worth taking? Well, so I typically would want them to back into that with me, right? So if you're, first of all, going back to who's your customer, your customer is your patient, your customer is your referral source, your customer is your employees, your customers are your vendors. The first two, the patients and the referral sources, they have an expectation of a certain amount of quality of care, responsiveness, availability of appointments return calls, you know, respond to refill requests, those types of things. So when you, specifically for pain management, I would say when you get to a point that you cannot see a new patient being referred to you by the local neurosurge or orthopedic or PCP in two weeks or less, you need to think about adding bandwidth from a pro provider's perspective, because if you don't, somebody else will, and there goes your referral source, and there goes your opportunity for growth, period. So you have to take great care of both those referral sources and your patients. If I'm the local neurosurge or orthopedic or PCP, and I've decided that, hey, Ms. Smith that I've been seeing for 20 years, I have nothing else to offer her. She's been on a sustainable you know, medication regimen for 20 years, but it's not working anymore. And I've held off because she's not going to perceive this well. She's going to think I'm categorizing her or whatever the, the case may be. When I, as the PCP or other specialists, make that decision, I don't want you to tell me it's going to be three months for me to see Ms. Smith. Because why? Because I've already decided that 
I don't have anything else for that, any more tools in my toolbox to help her or to help manage her situation. And that just prolongs the agony for the both of us. So I think using those types of drivers and then managing the financial aspects around that. So if you are considering adding a provider, start with a PA, right? Maybe maybe don't start with a doc. A PA is going to, if you're a physician, they're going to be able to at least help support 25 or 30% of your volume in the follow-up appointments and the lead pools and things of that nature. You would add a new doctor when there are too many procedures and too many new patients to be seen for you to do that in a manageable, reasonable amount of time. As far as adding a new location, you're not completely duplicating everything because you still have some some amount of centralized services, be it you know your referrals team, your insurance team, your billing team, your triage team, those types of folks. Maybe you even have a telephone team that you can share to help support that. And then perhaps consider, at least initially, sharing staff. So generally I would have I would expect reasonably busy provider to have two to 2.5 FTEs per provider. If I'm adding a provider or adding a location to accommodate a provider, and this is provider number two, then I'm going to probably not have those two providers in the practice at the same time. So one will be at location A while the other's at B and vice versa. And then optimally, what I would want to do would be have the clinical support team, the two and a half medical assistants, either follow the provider that they generally work with or ensure that both teams are up to speed enough to be able to work either ENM or procedurally. Obviously, you're, you don't want to reproduce staff that doesn't have a provider in the office so that you're not incurring that expense. Got it. And there's obviously a lot of like nuance and detail required to understand the optimal path, but that's really helpful context. I'm sure there's people out there listening who are thinking, wow, Tina sounds like she knows what she's talking about. I would like to get in touch with Tina. What is the best way for people to find or reach out to you? Email. You can go to my website and fill out a contact form. It puts an email straight in my uh, email box. Email is tina at the apsllc.com. And the website is apsllc.com as well. Awesome. And applicable links you can find in the show notes. So apmsuccess.com slash 142. We'll have Tina's contact info, her website there. If anybody's interested in following up, Tina, thank you very much for joining us today on APM Success. Hey, thank you. Look forward to, to being with you again. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.